All right, you're listening to another podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. I'm Tom Johnson, and today I am speaking with Andrew Davis live in person. Uh, Andrew is one of the um, most knowledgeable people about API doc writers and positions and companies in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, Andrew, can you just introduce yourself a little bit before we get going into some of these questions? Sure. Um, I'm a former technical writer of software developer documentation, um, crossed the line to the dark side in 1995 and became a recruiter of those candidates, primarily for startups, primarily for software development roles in the Bay Area. Great, great. And um, all right, today we are going to be talking about uh, getting jobs in API docs and how to hire, especially. Um, I have found that hiring API candidates is re- or API doc writers is really hard. Like we've had open positions at my work many many months. Candidates try to you know we identify people we think are 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 you know uh, qualified, but then they don't quite make it through. Uh, companies really struggle to 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 hire. Right. So, first question here. Um, for companies that are that are trying to hire these developer doc roles, API doc roles, they often post positions that are kind of uh, seeking unicorn candidates with super specialized tech knowledge, as well as you know high proficiency of writing and the ability to create you know uh, high high quality looking outputs with the websites, uh, project leadership experience. Um, are they surprised when they can't find these candidates? First of all, I agree that the the bar is being raised for tech writers' technical knowledge and also their their writing experience. Um, are they surprised? Their, their Goldilocks committee generated job descriptions are resulting in not too many qualified candidates. I sincerely doubt it. If they are surprised, it's because they don't understand how rare these people are, um, much less how they prefer to work. So the job descriptions are kind of tone deaf, um, and tone deaf demands tend to backfire in a candidate's job market. If they were serious about filling these posts and finding people who both can and want to do the work, they'd engage with those who have done it but prefer, say, to work on a contract or a remote basis. In most cases, companies won't even try to do to engage that way. So call me cynical, but this suggests to me that management isn't serious about hiring, and frankly, that the posted positions aren't actually funded at all, but they're more of a resume harvesting maneuver. So if I'm right, the only thing that's going to motivate management to get serious about hiring is when their existing resources start pushing back, or worse, defecting. Um, when I recruit for a company that seeks unrealistic combinations of skills and experience, I ask, one, have you ever met someone like that? And two, do you have any idea what such a person would cost? Invariably, the answer to both questions is no. Then I inform them that their particular purple squirrel probably does exist somewhere, but costs a lot more than they can afford. So then we start prioritizing you know, how important really is it that person work on site? How important is it that they know the company's unique tool chain or work as a salaried employee or manage others? 
Do they want the work done or do they just want the ego rush of boasting about a caliber of, can- of talent to which they can dictate terms? So that's, that's what I suspect is going on. Uh, so you mentioned that some of these resume or these job descriptions might not be entirely serious or you said they're, they don't, they're wish, they're wish lists. Can you, um, can you comment more like are they, they're real positions, but, uh, like, or are they sometimes, uh, fake or false positions that they're composite positions created by committee. And we've got marketing people weighing in and product management and engineering and probably an executive or two saying, well, we have these different skill sets. Let's combine them and see if we can find somebody who fits the bill on both. Save some money. And that's that and the fact that they don't necessarily want to fund the positions that we're talking about if they don't absolutely have to. Do they have to? only when the existing talent mutinies. So the positions are real as far as they do exist on job boards, but I know from personal experience from sending perfect candidates to roles where I know there's a need, there's no response at all. It's like, okay, thank you for the application. Two months later, we've decided to pursue other candidates. Nobody got a call. We know that nobody's filled it because we know the insiders and we know no interviews have happened. Nobody's been hired. It's it's a game. This is interesting. I hadn't really thought of that. So so let's say a company has this wish list out there. It makes the current employees feel good knowing that there's open positions, we're looking for more help, but they've raised the bar so high that they can't actually hire and it's just this mirage where you know, the company isn't really serious about hiring anybody but the best talent, which they're probably not willing to pay for. Bingo. Okay. All right. Well, that's 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 kind of revelatory. Uh, and I think I can see how that could be totally spot on as well. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned that a lot of these uh, job descriptions are put together by committees with engineers and others, uh, project managers. Um and I know when engineers go through hiring processes, they take technical tests. It's very stringent on the tech. <clears throat> so when people are looking, these same groups are looking for API technical writers, do they over-index on the tech and just kind of uh, give an easy pass to the writing? In my experience, they don't over-index like they would for engineers. They care a lot about the technical background. And that is the way candidates are are judged pre-interview. Like, does the resume have the right buzzwords? Following that, there is an evaluation typically over the phone. But it's it takes place the actual do you know the definition of or can you give answers to black and white yes or no, right or wrong questions. That typically happens later in the process after the person has been phone screened and their writing samples reviewed. And in my experience, the engineer conducting that quiz, that that technical review, has been told don't hold them to the same standards as an engineer. I know that Google demands the technical evaluation before they'll interview anybody by phone even. 
but they are the exception. And I think appropriately so because there are other skills involved. I think a technical writer's job is not to know all the answers, to know how to find them instead. Um, all right. Now, another question. Uh, a lot of companies, especially larger companies, have contracts with recruiting agencies. And these recruiters often recruit for many different positions. They probably have very little idea what all the skills are being asked. They're just supposed to find this candidate that knows this skill, right? So are these sort of blind recruiters who don't really know, they're not familiar with the tech comm profession, do they face an uphill battle in trying to find candidates, especially uh, filling wish lists um, and other sort of things? Like, are they are they even able to uh, appropriately assess a candidate if they don't even you know have a close understanding of of the tech comm profession? They fa- face a huge uphill battle, and part of it is the reason you don't you haven't even mentioned yet, which is they do not have access to the hiring manager. They cannot ask questions interactively of the hiring manager. Um, you you made reference to the fact that the recruiting operation is blind. If you'd like, I will elaborate on how that actually happens for midsize and larger companies. Okay, so these kinds of companies, with the exceptions, I'll just state right up front. Um, Amazon, Google, at least for staff positions, Salesforce, Splunk, Oracle, they tend to do their own hiring. At most other companies, the company engages a managed services provider, an MSP. A managed services provider controls hiring for staff and contract positions, but mostly the contract where they ensure compliance with tax law. Okay, this MSP subcontracts the actual sourcing of candidates to firms that I call sourcers. Not sorcerers, sourcers. These companies are typically lean, low-budget, keyword-hunting machine shops. And they are in charge of trolling LinkedIn, trolling resume databases, and finding candidates with keywords. They are not recruiters. They, are, they don't understand the job. And even when they do get awarded the opportunity to try to find candidates, they are given one chance to listen to the job description, usually from the hiring manager. It's a recitation rather than an interaction. They don't have any incentive to ask hard questions of the hiring manager, like if you could choose between this and this, which would you pick? Because it'll make them look weak in a public forum. So off they go as soon as they have a job description and hunt for keywords. Typically that's titles and tools and programming language and so forth. And your phone rings at two in the morning with somebody from, with a English as a second language accent, promising you a perfect job that just happens to be two states away and pay half of what you need. Um, And they don't understand the significance of what you do. They don't have the time or inclination to ask about it. It's not something they're rewarded for. It's speed and volume and low cost. That's all the managed services provider cares about. Notice I did not say accuracy, did not include accuracy in that list. These people are are generating volume to throw to the wall. So basically the company looking for candidates is saying we want to pay X 
the managed, ser- managed service provider relays that to the sourcing services, the sourcing services discount it, and suddenly you're offered $35 an hour for an $80 an hour job because the difference is theirs to keep. Uh, interesting. You know, I, I do often get people reaching out to me on LinkedIn and I didn't realize this difference between a recruiter and a sourcer. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, it's good to understand that. Um, and, and yeah, like you say, they, they, the sourcers give you, uh, they, they paint this picture of, Oh, we have this perfect fit for you. And then you're like, well, what is it? And if they finally send you the job description, it's like, uh, something that isn't by any means the perfect. Somebody once sent me something. It was like, hey, this job involves converting legacy documents into Word and Visio. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> Clearly, they don't even understand me. Um, so you mentioned kind of this process about <clears throat> how MSPs uh, contract with these sourcers and they get all these you know referrals that are bubbling up. Uh, I'm kind of curious, how do people on, how do the recruiters and the sourcers find candidates? Like, how are, are they just exclusively using LinkedIn? Um, are they just doing keyword searches? Like, how do they, what's their process for, process for finding people? And how can job searchers kind of tweak that to get better matching? So, sourcers are the source of the initial contact. Their job is to identify you through keyword searches and only keyword searches. Yep. They're not reading your resume. They have no appreciation for what it is you do or want to do. They're merely saying this keyword showed up in, in a resume. Let's be the first to contact the candidate and get their right to represent. Basically they're, they're, doing a verbal contract with you such that if you say you client or agency ABC have the right to represent me to your client, that means that no other agencies can come in after you and be represented for that opportunity. Okay. So how do they do it? Well, they're throwing spaghetti at a wall. Um, they are going to ask you the first question they typically ask is what's your rate and what do you cost? And based on that and based on the skills they see, they'll let a recruiter, typically not the sourcing person, but a separate skill set who understands the opportunity better, get involved. That person will either offer to answer your questions or send you a, send you a detailed job description and say, we're representing you here just FYI, um, so that nobody else tries. And then the resume goes into an applicant tracking system, an ATS. And the client company with the hiring managers who are actually motivated to look at resumes, look at those resumes, and they may see something that they actually value, but they probably won't, and you'll hear nothing, which is why these companies consistently have a reputation of going dark on you because the hiring manager doesn't understand what they're looking at and looks at the price and says, that can't possibly be right. I, you know, I can't hire Tom for $10 an hour. And, and it's a, a self-canceling equation. Um, I, my experience as an independent recruiter of technical writers is when I send a resume, typically not only have I done a great deal more scouring to, and figuring out whether that person is a match, but I've sent a resume 
and a cover note that says, okay, there are imperfections in this puzzle. Following apply, you should know. This is not 100% perfect, but I don't want you to discover that later in the game. I want you to take this submission seriously and speak with the candidate if the following caveats are okay by you. Um, so basically, it's a full disclosure, more respectful way to play. Um, you know, I... So, let me answer your question. I apologize. Let me answer your question about LinkedIn profiles and how to make them uh, less <laughs> tempting to, to the people who are kicking tires. Um, take out the keywords of tools and technologies and you know, industries in which you no longer want to work. If you absolutely, you know, yes, you're a master of Word, you're a master of Visio, I would hope that those quickly drop off the list of things that you leave on your profile or leave in your resume. Nobody cares. And they're not hiring you that for that. And they don't want, you don't want to price yourself as if somebody could. So remove from the list that you put, you publish to the world, the things that you don't want to use again. Um, I've also, I've also seen supplying dummy contact information in your LinkedIn profile work really, really well. Create a con just create a different email address that says LinkedIn inquiries, you know, slash Tom Johnson or underscore Tom Johnson at gmail.com. At least you can segregate those. And if you don't recognize a phone number that's incoming, send it to voicemail. Um, and, and finally, if all that fails, especially you, Tom, you tell them, gee, I know somebody at that company. Thanks for the tip. I promise they won't be calling you back and they will be angry. Oh, because if, oh, okay. You just short-circuited them. You, 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 you've just gone around them and they have no control because you haven't given them the right to represent. Uh, it's an interesting tip that you're you're saying about removing the keywords about the tools uh, because I see this very commonly on resumes and in fact um, I, I almost think people are looking like if you are searching right you're actually wanting to find a job don't you want to align your list of keywords with the keywords in the position that you're going for you absolutely do want to align your, your resume, your LinkedIn profile with the position you seek, just not the position. You don't want to include tools that you don't want to use. And in this case, it's Word and Visio, you know, and, and you could put in FrameMaker and you could put in any number of tools that, sorry, I don't want to work for a company that's going to have me using FrameMaker. That's 20-year-old technology. Thank you. Goodbye. Um, so I'm not saying cut the keywords. Out. I'm just saying trim the list to the kinds of roles you seek. So if you're seeking docs as code related content tool chains, put the appropriate keywords in there, but don't put non, <laughs> don't put oxygen in there. Don't put, uh, you know, don't put flare in there if that's not where you want to go. All right. Another question about LinkedIn that I'm curious about. Um, so I get a lot of requests to connect with people, right? I probably get 20, 30 a week and I go through and I pretty much hit accept, accept. I look to see if they're a recruiter. If so, I'd hit ignore. Cause then they're like, Hey, we got a great job for you. I'm like, no, no. Um, 
But I mainly accept all these connections because I know that uh, if they're like connected with me and I post something on LinkedIn, I think it lands in their feed. So it's kind of like following me in the same way that you would on Twitter or something. Um, but as a result, I have like 5,000 people that I'm connected to. I know maybe like 0.1% of them. Am I using LinkedIn incorrectly? Like how should people use LinkedIn? Should you accept all the requests even if you don't know people? So in the early days, LinkedIn asked you not to accept connection requests from people you don't know. Those days are past and there is an incentive for, especially for people like yourself, to accept non-toxic connection requests. And I would agree with you that rec recruiters and HR people aren't going to help you and are going to undermine your credibility by basically spamming your list. Um, so I very much doubt that the non-tech com connections that you've made care about the content that you circulate, but I know that the tech com people definitely do. And so you serve a very helpful function. You've taken literally this social media side of LinkedIn by saying, this is what you guys should care about. Pay attention, you know, tune into my feed and comment and elaborate and let's build a community around your, your network. What you may not know is that by accepting a connection request, you become a gateway to others' networking efforts. Um, a lot of people don't know how to use LinkedIn as a networking tool. They think, oh, let's just great. aggregate lots of connections and someday I may get lucky. Um, the few people who do know how to use LinkedIn to leverage mutual connections benefit. And to them, you're a godsend because you're hyper-connected. Um, I use LinkedIn differently. I use LinkedIn as a, as a database of my connections, people I know who are in the business. And these are people that I can check on and people that know and respect what I do and, and can deliver. Um, I actually exclude from my LinkedIn network even my clients hiring managers. I basically don't want to give anybody free access to the talent for which I can vouch. At least, you know, I'm happy to give them access, but ultimately I want to be paid for that. So I replied to all LinkedIn requests saying, here's what I do, and here's whether I'm going to accept or, or decline your connection request. And I am going to explain that I'm happy to, to serve you and happy to help your friends, but this is what I do for a living. And if I were to let in recruiters and other HR people and even clients who are looking on behalf of their friends, it's the simplest thing in the world for them to discover gold among my connections. So I do my part to block that. You know, I have never actually tried to see the connections that other people have. Is that like a special access thing or have I just not understood how to do it? Like if if I'm uh, following Joe something, how can I see all the people that are part of his network? Is that available to me? That is available to you. Yes, it is. Um, I, I do not know whether you have to have a premium membership to it. You can... You can get a free 30-day trial and find out what, what else is possible. I've always had a premium subscription. I pay $700 a year. Um, to me, 
that's worthwhile. Um, but I can search throughout my connections for any number of keywords. I can restrict it by level of connection, first, second, third. Um, geography and past and present employers, um, title, and so forth. So it helps me. And when I, you know, I know that my competition has the same or a better level of LinkedIn service. And I just, I know that they have no scruples. So if they plug into my network, they're going to milk it. I wish I could sell access to my network, <laughs> but I can't. That's, that's terrible. It's called, advertising. it's called advertising on your blog. So that's what you do. All right. Uh, let me ask another question here. Um, we, I mentioned at the beginning that we've really struggled to find candidates, right? Uh, it can take months, even years, just to hire a single person. Part of that is because we've got extremely high standards. Um, but the other part is that I think it's very difficult to look at a resume and know whether that candidate is qualified or not. Some, some people are great at writing resumes, but they lack, you know, I don't know, other types of experience that would be significant. How do you, because you constantly work with a lot of candidates, right? And, and people, companies look at you to find the right candidates. So if you give them garbage candidates, like your whole reputation isn't going to you know, be strengthened. So when you, when you meet candidates or you look at resumes, how do you kind of uh, use your, your sixth sense to know if the candidate is worthwhile or if the person should be passed on? So there are two questions there. Um, I'm going to comment on the first first. Um, I don't think like Jeff Bezos. So I can only speak from my perspective. And that is the perspective of someone who could introduce plenty of people who want to work at Amazon, who have the skills that you and others already there have. But I think demanding that newcomers be substantially better than the already above average workforce is a self-defeating exercise. Sorry. Um, it, it reminds me very much of being told a month after I joined Oracle in 1988, back in prehistory, okay, we've taught, we've trained you. We've taught you a lot about our database and a lot about the operating systems on which it runs. Now go find somebody who knows all this already, who'll work for less. And they were paying me 26 K. Uh, so, so, so that just, okay, that's predatory. You know, there is no some, such someone out there. They need to be trained. They need, they need the opportunity to dig in and, and become good at the things that they aren't yet expert at. Okay, so, seems obvious, but management hasn't twigged to that. So if we were in a recession and there were an overqualified, indebted tech writer on every corner, like there was in 2002, 2008, Great, I'd say fantastic, capitalism at work, it's cruel, but it works. But we are not, we are in a near zero employment economy where the technical talent that's in demand has lots of choices and lots of work style or lifestyle options. They're not having to work on site. Working on site in Silicon Valley for those who don't live in Silicon Valley and even some of those who do is not preferred, especially for tech writers. So that's, 
again, I spoke to about the tone deaf job description. You can't say, you can't get away with culturally, we're on on-site culture, take it or leave it. It does not fly. Um, you asked how to tell if a candidate is worthwhile. So I'm going to summarize how I do it. But first, I'd like to agree that there's a difference between being worthwhile, quote unquote, and being able to pass muster with a conflicted consensus-driven interviewing con context or culture. If you've got different people saying, we want this and I, we, want, we want this, and maybe we'll agree, but maybe we, we won't, and we'll just waste each other's time because no unanimity will be achieved, the candidate doesn't shine and the, sh the candidate doesn't get hired and you've wasted your time. Maybe you get to congratulate yourself on being masters of the universe, but you certainly, this is what happened all the time at Oracle. You know, we're so proud that nobody qualifies to, to follow in our footsteps. It was sickening. Um, okay. So what do I do? Um, I start by scouring the candidate's resume. I look for evidence that they can write, that they can organize information and that they understand my client's technology and the audience, or that they've written and you know, proven their understanding of a similar, similarly sophisticated one. Next, I look at their writing samples, preferably the ones that they've authored and produced solo, so that I know it's their work, not a committee, and not, the help, not with the help of an editor and so forth. Um, and I'm looking for precision, I'm looking for clarity, I'm looking for consistency. I can't be the judge of accuracy. I can't be the judge of what their style guide says. Do I like it or not? You know, if they're consistent, that's good enough. Then if the person is still in contention, I speak with them by phone and or in person at an STC meeting or a write the docs event. And if all continues on track, I use my network to do a back channel reference check. So I will ask people I know who worked with that individual. That's simple, to, simple enough for me to find. Um, you know, what is this person really like? What else should I know? What's what's missing? Um, any any issues that are going to to make me regret representing them? And then, if I find inconsistencies between references and so forth, I'm going to dig deeper. Um, if I find date inconsistencies, I'm certainly going to dig deeper. Um, and if I find non-fatal flaws, I'm still going to represent them, but I'm going to, as I mentioned in my cover note, I'm going to say there are flaws. There, this is not, an imperfect, not a perfect solution to your problem, but you need to know, okay, this person lives you know, two hours away. They are not going to be on site every day. Or this person is also interviewing at your, you know, these three competitors and they're close. Uh, you, you need to know these things. And frankly, that builds my credibility and it lets them spend their time and their resources much more efficiently. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, doing the back channel check and kind of asking colleagues or people who are connected with them never that's the, the references that's something I've, I've never, refer, never references if they put the person down as a reference that person is off my list now if somebody applies at at our company i don't think i'm allowed to reach out 
for fear that what if the person has applied on the sly, right? They don't want their employer to know. What if I reach out to one of their current colleagues, set off alarms? Is this a red flag for like people in my position? You don't reach out to current colleagues. You reach out to past colleagues. And if they don't have a past, that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. Okay. So that's it. You don't want to. You do not want to doom them because they will remember you as the person who did that. It, you pointed out something else, right? Starting with the resume. And and here's uh, something I've been kind of thinking about in my mind. How much can you extrapolate from some quirky errors on a resume to dismiss a candidate? Because if you've got the right, you've got one page of writing and you note some things like not well designed or the heading is weird or... Uh, the first sentence is odd. Can you use that, even though it's just one instance, to say, you know what, pass on this candidate? I know hiring managers who do. I know hiring managers who see a flaw, a typo, a missing apostrophe, gone. But I don't think they're sufficiently hungry or they're looking for people who exist in abundance. Um, I see flaws on 80 to 90% of the tech writer's resumes I look at. I ask for people to send me Microsoft Word files as opposed to PDFs because, and if they send me PDFs, I save them, I save them out as Word because I can see whether they know how to use tabs, whether they know how to do spacing intelligently, whether they know uh, how to change fonts and use apply styles. That tells me an awful lot about their craftsmanship, whether they actually take pride in presentation or whether they're just hammering it out and they're mostly about, you know, spitting out keywords. That's, that's, that's a warning sign to me. I, I actually knew a guy a long time ago when I was just getting into tech writing who had a similar philosophy. He wanted to see resumes in Word to see if they use styles or not, right? Which is like, a fundamental thing if you're working in Word, you know, to use. Although now I'm, I don't know, like I rarely use Word. So I go in there, I will use a style, but like it's, I'm not, I have to kind of review how to do some things in Word. So <laughs> that's fine. We're always learning or, and forgetting. But essentially it tells you their attention to detail and whether they take pride in using the tool of the moment. It doesn't have to be that they'll author in Word on the job, certainly not, but this is a document over which you have 110% control. If you can't get it right and you have every incentive to do so, what makes you think that the person is actually going to take the care, to take the time, make the effort to get it right on the job after, you know, after the judging has finished? <laughs> Are they actually going to want to do it right. Take a pride of ownership. Uh, let me ask you another question um, about the ideal hiring process. Uh, the way we currently approach it is after looking at a resume, uh, we sort of decide to do a phone screen with the candidate. We'll talk to them to just get a better understanding of their interests, background, experience, knowledge. And if that goes well, we'll schedule an on-site interview, which is kind of like a huge jump between a phone screen and an on-site because the on-site is about six hours long. It's like with half a dozen people, it's grueling. Um, 
and I don't know, maybe 15% actually make, make it through successfully if that, uh, so I'm wondering what, what do you think the ideal hiring process is? What, is there a better movement from what I described or some other thing you might recommend? If there's an existing technical writer or technical publications department, I encourage technical writers to be evaluated first by a member of that team. And I think there's really no substitute for the nuance that a technical writer can pick up from reviewing resumes and writing samples. So yes, it's hard work, but it does not belong in the hands of a recruiter. A recruiter needs to sell. A recruiter needs to move the pipeline forward. And sourcers, I hope by this stage, the sourcer is long since silenced, um, if they even existed. But you start with the, with a review of the writing samples. And if you hear, gee, I'm a dev doc writer and I've got no writing samples, they're all under NDA, you know, we can talk about that, uh, <laughs> that mess um, next if you want. But you want to see samples that are authored and fully owned by the candidate. You don't want composite samples. You don't want team results. You don't want some, you don't want content that the person has inherited and, and tweaked. Um, so that, that doesn't prove compatibility or incompatibility. What it does is create a list of questions and concerns about that candidate. That list should be shared with the interviewing team. Um, you want to, yeah, if, if the team that will speak with the candidate next is consists of non-technical communicators, you want to ask them about specific technology, about systems, about tools, processes, even compatibility with different kind of corporate cultures. Um, you don't involve anybody else on the engin engineering team or the interviewing team until the writer has given the thumbs up. I, I think that's toxic. It leads to toxic problems. If the writer is is introduced to their new candidate this past engineering muster, but never talked to the tech writer or talked to the tech writer only after it was a fait accompli that this person would get hired. Um, have a phone conversation with them. Ask the candidate top priority questions from that list. The employee making the call should understand the role, should understand the context, why the role exists, what the role is going to do, how the role could evolve, and should also understand the audience. Putting somebody without this background, without this understanding of the role, on the phone with a talented, in-demand candidate is the quickest way to alienate them. So I recommend keeping, keeping your recruiters far away from somebody who looks good to you until it's time to negotiate or time to talk about benefits. Really, they have no part in picking the right, highly skilled, in-demand candidate. Um, they may argue otherwise. I'm sorry, you know, I'm their competition, but I also see their weaknesses. Um, so if the phone interview goes well and the candidate's interested, move quickly after the on-site interview to, excuse me, after the, the phone interview, to an on-site interview or to a video conference style interview. Don't wait for the person to be available to come down if that's, you know, gee, I've got these things going on, I can't get there. Do it, do it over the video. Um, make the candidate aware in advance of the people, the names, the titles, and so forth that they're going to speak with, um, what those people are going to focus on. 
Also, don't have more than one person ask the same question. It makes the hiring team look disorganized, or worse, it makes them look suspicious of the candidate. Well, we get the same answer. Two different people ask the same question. Um, after the in-person interview, interviews should confer with each other. They get together, put their heads together, decide immediately, and deliver the verdict via the intended hiring manager. Don't make it through recruiting, and don't linger. So silence or this generic email that says we've decided to pursue other candidates are frustrating and they're likely to lead, at least likely to lead to constructive engagement. I would say deliver the verdict, explain where the concerns were if the answer is no, or tell them why you think the person is a great fit and start discussing compensation in the start date. Even if you really want to hire this person, waiting too long to share, share any of this, maybe until legal gets in or finance has weighed in, is a really bad idea. Oh, you, you brought up a question I've, I've had, um, and I actually didn't float this question to you before, uh, but the question is, should the same team that is trying to hire be the main ones in the hiring process? I know a lot of companies, for example, Google, um, the people who do the hiring aren't the same people who are, who are, you know, seeking to fill the position. And I know that when I've looked at candidates, a lot of times, um, when we were down to just me in our group, I was like so eager for another resource because I knew that like, there's a lot of work and you don't need to be rocket science scientist to do it. You know, let's get some people on board. Right. So I'm like thumbs up on everybody, but then other people in the process, the, project managers, engineers who it doesn't impact them whether this person gets hired or not, right? They're much more objective, I guess. Um, they're not desperate. Uh, so maybe they're, they're a better judge. Do you think, so do you think this role of desperation leads to like a bad hiring process as a result? Maybe you end up hiring somebody that you later regret. There is a famous saying, Hire in haste, in haste, repent at leisure. Um, you will make the wrong decision if you're desperate. It's, it's almost a given. But you should be involved in the hiring decision, and you should be the primary point of contact with the candidate that you think is going to pass muster. But everyone else gets a vote. It's just that they don't get an equal vote. You, as the colleague, and ultimately that person's hiring manager and probably manager, you need veto power, selective veto power over other people's comments because they are going to be conflicted and they are going to be suspicious that you're lenient and they are going to, you're right, they are not impacted to the same extent you are. But you know, the day you have a heart attack and you don't show up, they'll be impacted and they frankly don't want that to happen almost as much as they don't want to make a hiring mistake. Um, there is a very big black mark associated with people who make hiring mistakes. I would say it's much better culturally not to hire anybody than to hire the wrong person in many hiring managers' eyes. They lack the confidence, they lack the sophistication, and they don't want to look bad to management for having to unwind an employment arrangement. So I would say be involved, stand your ground, be ready to be overruled, but also, I mean, you have to have skin in the game. And if you don't, 
if it's all neutral, I don't think you're going to be well served by the person you hire. Uh, now, you, you brought up something earlier about um, writing samples. And like if you have all of your writing behind an NDA, this is very difficult. And I actually was talking with somebody. She, this person had been at Google for a year as a contractor, worked on lots of great projects. They were all behind the firewall, none of them available. And this person was really kind of upset and concerned because she had this great employment history on her resume. But if you don't have writing to show, it becomes very difficult. And I know you must get this question a ton, right? What do you do when your writing is internal? Um, do you... Do you sometimes just say, I'm just going to show it anyway. Nobody's really going to care. It's just like a formality. You know, they, we kind of know what's really confidential versus what's just, quote, confidential. Um, if you're selling the secrets or exposing major secrets, uh, maybe that's treated differently. Or maybe in both cases, sets off alarm bells in the employer. What is your take on, like, how people should approach the scenario where their best writing is internal or shouldn't or can't be shared? It's a fine question. Yes, I hear it often. There's a whole section of my website about portfolios and non-disclosure agreements and how to work around them. So I get myself in trouble by actually trying to get creative here. And I will just tell you what has worked and how to convince a candidate who says, I can't show you anything, it's all NDA'd. You'll just have to trust me that I can write rocket science documentation for you. No, I'm not going to trust that. I'm going to look for evidence that they can write. So first of all, I recommend that candidates seek past employers or past clients permission to share variants of the content that they created. No, I'm not talking about the actual product content. I'm not talking about what they published. I'm talking about a neutered version of the documentation or selected parts of the documentation that changes product names, that changes the actual command line content, that makes it almost uh, most obvious that you've actually you've altered, you've doctored the content. But what is obvious still is how you organized the content and how clearly you explained the content. So I tell people, Take your product names and substitute Disney character names. Um, I tell people, you don't have to show me a 300-page API reference. I want to see a little conceptual content. I want to see some procedural content. Two, three pages is fine. Give me an API reference. Two pages, fine. Give me a table of contents. I'm so happy to see how you organized that content. But I also recommend that... Your, your goal is to convince the hiring team that you respect the non-disclosure agreement that you signed. You don't want to go ahead and say, hey, I know I signed an NDA, but it's old, or we've de you've deprecated this product, or gee, you know, that was five years ago, and the company is out of business. That doesn't fly. And the lawyers at the new company, new client or new employer, they have the right to be worried if you just brush it away and say that doesn't matter so another solution i've seen that does work is to create your own brief nda not a 10 pager but just a a simple non-disclosure agreement that says you would be employer or client 
promise not to circulate this content. And I'm going to share it. It's going to be un... It's, it's been approved or it's been remedied. It's been neutered. And it's on my website. It's behind a password. And I'm going to change that password in a week. And by signing this NDA, I want your name. I want your email address. And I'm going to share this list with my former employer so they know I'm respecting their NDA and these people saw butchered versions of what I created. But they got the idea that I respected the NDA, respected non-disclosure or respected the confidentiality and I am trying to prevent a runaway train wreck. All right. Hey, thank, that's great um, advice. And, and, you know, honestly, I usually like to only take positions now where I'm writing in public, in the public space. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, you mentioned some other things about, you know, having writing samples that are sole ownership of, of things you've created from scratch. That's also kind of hard, too, because it's like, if I took, I've got some projects at work that I, I kind of owned, but if I were to completely own them forever, I would, you know, run myself ragged. At some point, I have to share the burden and the bandwidth. Uh, let me let me ask another question. Um, now, uh, many companies, in order to try to attract candidates, will hold, host events. Right? We saw this at LinkedIn, at the Write the Docs meetup we were at, the LinkedIn downtown hosted the space, you know, you got to meet some of the employees, see what it looks like. Um, is this a really legit technique to try to attract candidates or is this just kind of like uh, something that doesn't really do a whole lot? In my opinion, holding those kinds of events and making the people look, on dis- put the, putting them on display and letting them be, look happy and, and attractive and you know come work with us we're we're such a a functional crew that backfires on most dev doc tech writers they don't want to belong to any club that would have them as a member Um, it is very simple to attract the kinds of people that you personally are looking for by saying hey come work for us you'll actually have a cubicle You'll actually have a motivated SME or a bunch of SMEs who will respond. You'll have a boss who stands up for you and and kind of mutes the, the, the politics. The fact that you have a water slide between the, you know, the, the floor you're on and the one below and that you can eat 24 hours a day and get your laundry done and have childcare and have a personal trainer. I'm sorry, most tech writers are, that do this kind of work are 50s and 60s and some in their 70s. That doesn't float their boat at all. It, it, it's kind of like, yeah, you're trying to sell to me like a millennial. I, I don't groove on that. I'm sorry. If you think that's me, you've got me wrong. Now, if you want more millennials and you want to deal with millennial issues, great. Show off all the food you can you can offer, and all the you know the the top chefs that you can muster, and and go ahead, put on a show, but that's not going to make a difference for people who are make who are basically choosing their careers as much for lifestyle and future marketability. 
as as just core core opportunities to have a work life balance that makes a difference to a boomer or to a Gen Xer. All right, Andrew, we've talked about a lot of different topics here, right? And this is this is I mean, this honestly is a super deep topic and there's all I mean, it's complex. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to let people who may be listening know how they could find you, how you could help them find the right candidates for these many positions that are very difficult to fill. Uh, just how do the people contact you? What's the process? So my name is Andrew Davis. The company is Synergistech Communications. The website is synergistech.com. By email, I'm synergistech at gmail. Phone, I'm 650-271-0148. I'm on site at every STC meeting in the the South Bay and San Francisco and the East Bay. I'm on on site at every single Write the Docs event anywhere. And I would be delighted to candidly tell you how I can help. So my focus by virtue of the uh, managed services provider phenomenon I discussed earlier has to be where the managed services providers don't tread. And that typically means startups. Managed services providers know that their promises will not fly with startups. So that's where Andrew heads. Um, and I am, I am a straight shooter. I would be very happy to coach you about resumes and portfolios and so forth, even if I can't hire you. And there is this resource that I make available to everybody that I, I want tech writers to thrive. And I actually want tech writers to thrive without recruiters. Um, if I had a wish, it would be to make myself um, unnecessary in the equation. But I continue to find myself necessary and missed by a lot of hiring managers who are overwhelmed with off-target candidates. And I would love to be able to work with companies that are ready to get quick, efficient results and candid commentary on on their their priorities and so forth. Thanks, Andrew. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add a little uh, other story. Um, you know, when when I moved out to this Bay Area, Andrew actually helped me find the job that was my first job out here, um, and it was my first foray into developer docs, which was, I mean, it's hard to get your foot in the door here. People in the job were like, does he know enough JavaScript? Is it going to work or not? But Andrew, like he, he was familiar with my background. He was able to, you know, sell me to the company, so to speak. Like he was able to, uh, help them have confidence in my abilities. And I did a great job at that, at that position. Um, I totally took off with JavaScript. It worked out really well. So I think, you know, having, Somebody who, who, who knows you as a candidate and knows the work is vital to having a connection there. So thanks for that. Um, is there any other topics you wanted to chat about here during this podcast? No, but thank you very, very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate your interest and the opportunity to reach a larger audience. And it's, it makes me feel valued. Thank you. All right, Andrew. Thanks for doing the podcast.